So let me just uh, say a few words of, of, about this project and how, how it came into being. Yes, I, when I was doing my, my DPhil here, I was working on the Tibetan medicine industry. I was working on the, the recent history of how a, a medicine industry in Tibet was created. And as part of this project, I was also looking into cross-border plants trade between Nepal and Tibet. And um, so I had this, this view of, of, of northern Nepal that supplies quite a lot of, of, of medicinal plants to, to the industry in Tibet. And these people I met... They reminded me so much of the people I met before I came here and, and started this research. When I was doing my initial master's research in, in Siberia uh, in 2002, 2003, I was doing research on the history of Tibetan medicine in Buryatia in Siberia. And um, while I was uh, asking people questions about, about their ancestors and about the transformations of Tibetan medicine and so on and so on, they were actually all, be all busy doing trade with China my hosts, my friends, my interview partners. This was such a big thing. And there were so many parallels, actually, between, between Nepal and between Siberia that were just too much in my... Yeah, they just stood in my face, and I had to follow up on that. In both cases, and it's a story that actually links together... There's a lot of shared experience between the people living around the borders of China. For most of them, uh, it was, there was a situation of, like plenty of interaction, plenty of trade until the 1950s, and when the People's Republic established itself in its present border, then um, well, China picked fights with almost everybody around. Uh, there was a war with India in the 60s, early 60s, there was a war with the Soviet Union in, in the early 60s, uh, a war with Vietnam, and so on. And so, actually, within a very short period of time, these old links, they, they were all well, a period of closure set in that severed these old trade links. And what has been happening over the past 10 to 15 years is a complete reversal of this thing. So many people who, were, for two generations, were looking to Delhi, to Kathmandu, to, to Moscow, to Hanoi, are, are turning back to China. Uh, so this is the, the starting point for, for, of my current research, which is, which is simply called Neighboring China. Um, for the past year, I've been mainly working on northern Nepal, and this is what I'm going to talk about today. This is the Limi Valley in, north in the northwestern corner of Nepal. Whenever the name Limi is mentioned, it is always mentioned together with the adjective remote. Be it in, a, in travel agency brochures, uh, where Limi is like the last remote hidden valley to be explored still, or in NGO proposals talking about development in remote areas, or in coffee table books uh, portraying this as the last remote, remote prototypical realm of, of authentic Tibetan Buddhism, or be it in the, in the URL of the Limi Youth Club Society's website, which is... Which is uh, LimiHiddenValley.com. So remoteness is always foregrounded as the defining condition of this valley. And indeed, it is remote. This is Simikot, the district headquarters of Humla. It is a four to six days walk from Limi, crossing a high pass that is only open in summer. And to fly, to, uh, to fly goods up to this airport uh, from the lowlands costs about £1.50 a kg. So whatever is brought up here to this airport has then to be carried for, for four to six days over a pass to this Limi Valley. The flights between Simikot and Nepalganj, they're expensive and they're frequently overbooked. And Nepalganj, the, the airport in the, in, the, in, the, in the lowlands of Nepal, is still a 12 hours bus ride from Kathmandu. 
So it always takes at least a week to get from Limi to Kathmandu. Limi's altitude allows for only one harvest per year. These fields do not guarantee subsistence. The yields are only sufficient for maybe five, maybe seven months a year. This is a very typical situation for many of the higher valleys of northern Nepal. Yet, not being able to produce enough food also means that people up here have a long history, a long history of looking elsewhere for income and fortune. Like many of the high Himalayan valleys, Limi was, of course, uh, an important trans-Himalayan trade route linking Tibet and Inner Asia with South Asia, two very different cultural and, and ecological zones. Now, in this purple belt you see just below the, Himal the high Himalayas, uh, the, the high hills of Nepal, uh, there is no salt. There is a, a, a shortage of salt. And on the other hand, on the high Tibetan plateau, there is a shortage of grain. So what people who settled in these high Himalayan valleys were doing, actually, was trade. They were trading, they were bartering salt for grain. That is how, the, the, how, how this lack of subsistence from the fields was always, um, was always rectified. Um, but apart from these basic commodities, uh, along these trade routes, there were other items being traded. Tibetan wool, for example, uh, was used to dress the emerging middle class in the 18th and 19th century in, in, in Europe and the USA. There are accounts of Tibetan white yuck tails being used as Santa Claus beards in the 19th century in, in Europe. And, and one of the most, if you go to, throughout the Tibetan world, one of the most prestigious, most high-value um, jewel uh, jewelry you can find are these red corals and the best of these red corals they come from, from the Mediterranean Sea they come from Genova and uh, Tibetan medicine the topic I was working on before has always relied on non-Tibetan herbs to a large extent and thus some trans-Himalayan trade so there was a lot of connections um, along these trade routes for probably a very very long time the conditions for this trade changed practically overnight when the PRC established firm control over Tibet in 1959. And these vibrant pathways became remote peripheries. So remoteness is thus a relatively recent phenomenon and it's hardly a basic condition of northern Nepal. It's a political thing. It's a political, a, a political outcome of, of relatively recent events. So this map of salt trade, which I've taken from a book by Tony Hagen, uh, shows the trade routes, how salt was being traded uh, before 59. So in the, in the mid-50s, you see that actually um, there is also salt coming from the Indian plains at that time. This started already at the beginning of the 20th century. But still, by the mid-20th century, you, you had these very important trade routes from the north coming down. This is what happened after 59. The old trade routes, they were cut, and uh, over the course of a few years, uh, the, the trade routes from the, from the south, they, they penetrated into the northern valleys. Uh, so this, I'm not sure how accurate this map really is. As we will see later, the history of trade is much more complex uh, over the past 50 years than this, one, this map would suggest. But it makes a point, and this point is certainly true. The northern Himalayas turned from very vibrant trade routes to remote peripheries. After a phase of closure and limited opportunities, it seems that now a phase of opening has begun and trans-Himalayan trade is coming back at an incredible pace. Encouraged by the PRC's policies of opening up and fostering trade, several new roads have recently been built on the Tibetan plateau. You see, this is actually 
in the Limi Valley or just next to the Limi Valley, you see that building a road here is actually not so difficult. It's much easier to build roads on the Tibetan Plateau than through the steep valleys that lead down to the, to the Nepal plains. So in many places in, northern Hipa- in the northern Himalayas, um, naturally these, these, these transport links to, to the Tibetan Plateau, they are actually much easier to, to do than, than down to the valleys. Until recently, however, there was only one motorable road between Tibet and Nepal, the so-called Friendship Highway. It, it links Lhasa via Shikatse and Latse to Kathmandu. Uh, this is one of the, the very old, very important trade routes, and it became a motorable road already in the mid-60s. Um, but this was the only one until very recently. This has now radically changed. At least six small roads have been constructed. Uh, from the Tibetan Plateau uh, in the last decade. So, from, do you understand me if I speak to this direction? So, uh, from east to west, we have now one road that leads down through Sakya, r- almost to the border. It's about two hours from the border, near a place called Kimatanka in the upper Arun Valley. Um, then we have one road, which is basically the, the road that the tourists take to, to go to Everest Base Camp, just north of, of Everest. Uh, this one is not very much used for trade. It's highly regulated, and there are no passes just there in, in, the, in, in the Everest. But there is a second road that leads to the Everest region, which is the one that leads to a place called Rongsha, in the Rongsha Valley. And on that road, that road actually has a little extension now, almost up to the border, which is a military road to, to make sure that no Tibetan refugees go over that pass, because that was the major pass where Tibetan refugees came to, to India. Um, then... Further west, we have many more roads. There was one road that actually goes from, from Lhasa all the way through the Tibetan Plateau until Ngari, uh, western Tibet. And from that road, several tracks now come down. There is one road that is uh, currently being built, uh, it's actually finished, um, to, to a valley called Kirong, Razuagari. And there is a, a road that comes down to Lomantang in Mustang. There are two roads that uh, lead to passes in Dolpa, very close to the border. One is literally just a, a few kilometers away from the border, actually. I've heard uh, two of these roads are now going through, so you can actually, the, the road through Mustang is, is, is finished, so you can actually go by truck from, from China down to, to Pokhara. And the road from Azuagadi to Kathmandu is also finished. The most important bit is a, a Chinese-built bit just uh, south of Razvagadi, which is basically finished. They're just building a few bridges there. Uh, further west, there are still more roads. I've heard rumors about roads up here uh, through Mugu, to Mugu, but I've not met anybody who has really seen them, so it's, it's only a rumor. But there are certainly two roads in the west. One is down from, from uh, uh, Lake Manazarwar, close to this holy Mount Kailash, through the Limi Valley, and the other one goes <coughs> to a place called Burang and then Hilsa. It is these two roads I'm, I'm going to, to concentrate on. So this is Hilsa, the border town. The little bridge uh, and that unguarded fence over there, that is the border to China. Here we see it a little up close. A little further you see the beginning of the Chinese road network. That black-topped road leads all the way to Lhasa or all the way to Ngari. This is where the, where the, the sealed road actually starts, so just right at the border. This place has become 
a total informal free market zone. There are no customs. There is no border infrastructure. That gate is actually open. A couple of poor Nepali police hang around. The occasional Chinese army patrol comes over. Um, uh, people just cross back and forth. Uh, the actual port is in Purang, about 25 kilometers up that road on the Chinese side. The rule is that anybody with an ID from Humla district in Nepal, which is the bordering district, is entitled to go up to Purang without visa formalities. They can basically just show their ID and the so-called border pass and go up there. Many stay in Purang for months, do business, uh, work on construction sites. There is no limit of time you can spend in Purang. This little bridge has become the lifeline of an entire region. Whatever is consumed in, in this part of Nepal, rice, flowers, noodles, candles, shoes, clothes, blankets, beer, liquor, batteries, sonar panels, television sets, kitchen utensils, stoves, blue metal roofing, everything comes, is carried over that little bridge and then brought down on yaks or mules uh, these five, six days to, uh, to Simicot. Most of this trade is technically illegal, but it's actually only illegal due to the fact that there is no state presence in northern Nepal, no import office, so whatever is brought here is just brought here. There's no tax on that. This is at least in part um, a result of, of the Maoist insurgency in Nepal and, and the, the fact that actually state order completely broke down in, in, in most parts of Nepal. And here it hasn't been, here as in, in many other places actually along the northern border, it's, it, it hasn't been, well, there are no cost, customs offices. Uh, on the Nepal side, uh, there's about 30 kilometers of road over a pass called Nara down into the Kamali Valley. And this is actually the roadhead where it was in September 2011, near a village called Yari. Near this roadhead, there you see the, 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 blue, the blue metal tin roofs that you now see all over Nepal. These, these, these Chinese roofs, they, you, you, can, you can even see them on Google Earth now. They're everywhere. Um, this is the roadhead. And here, this camp has, has mushroomed um, uh, last, last year. <coughs> So goods are carried over the bridge uh, and then brought here, and here they're sold for a moderately, moderately higher price. This is several advantages for, for people coming to buy these goods. Because, as we've seen, like the, the, the region around Hilsa is very dry and it's very difficult to find fodder for the animals there, for example. So it's, it's, it's a good deal to, to buy your things for a little more expensive, a little further down. And it's also a good thing to, to spend a few days less on the road because most private customers who come, come up here just for their own supplies or do like small-scale trade, they, they, they have families at home, they have fields to, uh, waiting, they have festivals approaching, and so on, and so on. This camp was set up by this young man, Sewang. I met him five years ago when he was still the secretary of an NGO in Kathmandu. He was handling relations with foreign donors. He was talking to anthropologists like me. He was, uh, he was dealing with things like the differences between Nepali and Indian legisla legislation, etc., etc. Last year, he gave up this job and set up this camp at the roadhead. Um, there were several private reasons for this, but fact is that he makes as much profit in an average day up here as he did in a month in his former NGO job in Kathmandu which is around 6,000 Nepali rupees, or 45 British pounds. This means a salary of about 1,300 pounds per month, which is not bad by Nepali standards. But it is still modest compared to other traders that deal, for example, in Chinese liquor. 
A trader with, let's say, 20 mules doing business with Chinese liquor can make a profit of about £1,900 in one trip to the border. That takes about three weeks. That, uh, given that 20 mules are an investment of roughly £14,000, that means that in not even eight trips he gets a 100% return on investment. And this is still nothing compared to the guys who operate that truck on the 30 kilometers row between the border and, and, and the camp. Um, they have a turnover of £430 a day regularly because they do three trips and about 50% of it is profit. This, makes, um, this means they have an income of roughly 6,500 British pounds a month, tax-free of course. One of these trucks in China costs about £9,000. Now you can calculate the return on investment here. When I was here, Tsewang wanted this friend of mine, he wanted to buy a truck himself, and he asked me if I, if I would, it was interested in investing some money in this truck. And Of course I was, but I wasn't liquid enough to do that. But it would have been an extremely good investment at that time. But profit is only one aspect of Tsewang's decision to establish a camp up here. Uh, he, was encouraged, he has encouraged other young people, other men, it's exclusively men, to follow his footsteps and set up tent stores around him. So now there is this entire camp city. Uh, they talk a lot about the prospects of, of how to revive this impoverished region and how it could become prosperous again. Tsewang himself has a very concrete dream. He was trained as a Tibetan doctor and he hopes to make enough money in a couple of years to establish his own private clinic for Tibetan medicine in Simikot, the district headquarters, the one with the, the airstrip. This was here uh, in Hilsa, just at the end of the road. <coughs> the other road is the Limi Road, which is very new. It started only two years ago and it was mainly the, the, the initiative of, of, a, of private businessmen from the region. This is not a World Bank project or a, a development project. It's basically businessmen from the region who took a lot of money in their hands, who got some moderate government support, which they haven't re really been able to get in the end. This is all still pending. And they built 67 kilometers of road in like 18 months. Here as well, there is one of these roadside camps. It looks like this. It was started by two brothers, Konsering and his younger brother Mingyur, originally from a village nearby. This is the northern tip of the Limi Valley. Typical, typical atmosphere in these camps. They bought the satellite phone. Uh, then there were these, these stray dogs that turned up the evening before we arrived. Uh, a little scary. They are the old oil barrels they, they managed to, to get for their truck from China, which is very difficult because China doesn't have any scheme to export petrol. They can only import petrol, but they manage. Um, there is old tires, old tubes. Uh, you see a lot of timber. Timber is one of the commodities they export to uh, uh, to China, which is also illegal because it's not registered by the government. You could do so, but then you would have to go through procedures that take just so much time that nobody does. Uh, and the sheep that was slaughtered a few days before. Just as Tsewang in the other camp, these two guys they came back from Kathmandu to establish this camp. The two brothers, they built this little stone house from the ruins of a nomad shelter. They bought a truck, they operate, operate the satellite telephone link, while Mingyu, the, the, the younger one, um, stays up here. Tsering pursues, pursues his business ventures between India and China and Nepal. Just as Tsewang, they run a shop that sells important, imported goods from China, whatever. This is their shop. You see, like, from cigarettes to noodles to, to whatever you, you want to buy.
A bottle of beer up here costs about half what it costs in Kathmandu. So the story of young men like Tsewang, like Konsering and Mingyur, coming back to these high valleys is actually very different from the standard narrative of out-migration, rural poverty and urbanization. You frequently hear about, hear about these, these remote places in Nepal. These young men, they may be a minority, but others join by the day. In September, 11, in September 2011, there was only one truck and maybe two jeeps on the Hilsa Road. And now there are about 30 vehicles are here. I just, I just talked to Tsewang about two weeks ago. So, and that all happened before the winter. So in the two months after I left, left in September, the, this has literally just boomed like crazy. Um, in Tugling, the, this camp here, there are now three trucks and a couple of jeeps. This is not just evidence how important uh, China, how important China's rise is for those living along the borders. It also raises a number of questions re regarding concepts like periphery and center of the relations between rural and urban. This is the signboard on, on Konsering's and, and, and Mingyu's shop in Tugling. It reveals a very cosmopolitan side to the lives and enterprises of these young men. We see there are five phone numbers in India, China, and Nepal. It's a signboard in three languages, no Tibetan. T Tibetan is the language spoken by everybody, but it's not a, a written language. So it's, when it's written, then it, it, it's either Nepali or Chinese, or Chinese. We see in the middle, you have this caterpillar fungus, Yartsagumbu, which is one of the major commodities in many parts of northern Nepal. This would be a talk on its own. Then we have a yak. A yak is still, or a zoo, actually. It's, it, it, this is still like a symbol of wealth. Uh, you have the address of the city office in Bauda, which has now very, very high land prices. So a house in Bauda is really something only the, 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 the affluent can afford. Um, and we have, uh, yeah, that's, that's this signboard. So you could, of course, say, oh, this is, this is some sort of mimicry, yeah? But I think this is actually, this is extra, exactly the reality of these, these people. Considering he, he constantly moves between, between China and, and, and <coughs> India and uh, following his business ventures. And these are the numbers you can always get hold of him, given the satellite telephone works, which usually does. So, considering he also was in America twice. Actually, it's a funny story. He... He received a letter and the, for a, a man called Konjuktsering, but it wasn't him. Uh, and this letter was basically the invitation for a, for a visa application to America. <laughs> so he just took it and went to the embassy and, and, and managed to convince them that the name of his wife was not the right one, but that is a complicated issue as well. doesn't matter, but he got this visa. He went to America. Uh, he stayed there, looked around, uh, he came back, he went again, because after the third time he would have gotten like a, a five-year multi-entry permit. He went again, came back, and decided that this was not for him. Because he would never work as like subaltern laborer for somebody else. This was not what he was up to. He wanted to be this, like a, a, an Asian, a, a, a transnational Asian trader well off in his, in his circumstances, but not some, some, some poor guy driving taxis. Tewang, the other guy on the other side, while I was there, he not only de de dealt with the supplies from Purang and all the complexities of that uh, and his customers, but also with the cosmopolitan complexities of a polyandric family in the 21st century. His brother had established a retreat center, a Buddhist retreat center in, in the US, and um, as it goes, he started a second family there. 
the polyandric family, two, two husbands, one, one wife, um, uh, they had two daughters, and one of them is basically his brother's daughter. And the question was now, of course, how this income from the retreat center would sponsor this daughter for education and so on and so on. You may argue that things like multiple phone numbers in different countries and managing family, family solidarity across borders, these are just the things... These are just how things are in the 21st century. This is nothing special. It's just migrant labor. But I think there, is, there are very crucial differences between these usually Tibetan-speaking communities in the high Himalayas and the people further down the hills. People in the hills, like the Rai, the Limbu, the Magar, they also have long histories of moving out. They worked on tea plantations in British India. They, they, um, one of the best things you can do is still going to the Gorkha army to become a Gorkha soldier, uh, to go to the UK, to India, to Singapore. And more recently, many, many, many go and work on construction sites in the Middle East or in South Korea. Hardly anybody from these valleys does that. I've, I've asked it around. I've yet, to come some, I've yet to come across somebody who really works in the Gulf or who knows somebody who really works in the Gulf. When moving out, people prefer doing so as entrepreneurs and traders, as petty entrepreneurs selling, selling sweaters in northeast India, as many people from Mustang do, or as gemstone dealers in Burma, or whatever, but not as laborers, not as work laborers. This is somehow what young men from these places do. You move out, you come back as a man with money and stories to tell. Stories like how I tricked the Indian authorities by importing fake Swiss watches via Hong Kong to Bhutan and then in the truck to India because there is no border post. You tell these stories uh, together with, with alcohol in the evening and you are somebody up there. This is how things go. And even those who do end up driving taxis and cutting sushi in Manhattan, and there are quite a few of them, yeah, um, they don't see themselves as, as, as labor migrants. They... They come home and tell stories of how they tricked the Indian authorities, how they got all the 20 of them on the same passport to the U.S. It's all these stories to count. It's, it's basically this, this. So there's a, a whole lot of difference between, between labor migration from the hills and this kind of, of adventure going out, becoming a man in, in the high Himalayas. These high Himalayan borderlands are also quite different from central Tibet in many respects. In central Tibet, for example, like the figure of the rich merchant... This is not usually somebody associated with prestige. Yeah? There's a lot of, 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 of um, antipathy against the Tsongpun, like the rich merchant. Yeah? You have to be an, ex an exceptionally good sponsor of a monastery to make good for that. But there is none of this prejudice against trade in, the, uh, in these regions. These are trading regions. Yeah? Uh, you can, it, it's a very prestigious thing, thing to, to, uh, to become rich through trade. Um, also, you don't find any of this typical risk-adverse mini-max strategies found in peasant societies all around the globe. Uh, subsistence farmers tend to be very risk-adverse. These people are extremely, extremely... They take risks and I, I, I can't watch. It's really amazing. They bet their entire fortunes on, on future developments in, in, in the markets far away. They only halfway understand, uh, like anybody... Uh, sometimes entire villages invest in one particular trading deal and, and basically risk the fortunes of an entire village on one deal. I've seen that going wrong twice. So these are things you would usually more associate with Wall Street capitalism than with rural peasant society. In short, 
I think the image of migration from the poor rural subsistence-oriented periphery to the rich urban capitalist center in search of a better life is not what we see here. These valleys, these erstwhile, erstwhile trade routes now regaining importance, they are neither centers nor peripheries. They belong to a third category I would, lo I would like to call pathways. Along these pathways, nodes tend to form. Temporary nodes, as the camps we have seen, but also on a larger scale, merchant towns, like Purang, the town near Hilsa. Pathways and nodes, in addition to centers and peripheries, I think may be a promising way to think about these regions, not only in the Himalayas, but elsewhere as well. Um, these node cities, for example, that, that's a figure of thought that could be applied to places like Leh in Ladakh, or maybe Kashgar in Xinjiang, or maybe Bukhara in Uzbekistan. Um, merchant towns. But this is another discussion, another, another idea, another project. Thinking the northern Himalayas as pathways and nodes rather than peripheries helps us see this continuity, helps us see these communities outside the box of rural smallholders and agricultural subsistence strategies, which is what they are primarily, primarily seen as until the present day. I mean, when the first outsiders Mountaineers, explorers, the first academics came to northern Nepal in the early 1950s. They saw villages like this. They saw agriculture. They quickly learned that people owned livestock up in the mountains, and some saw these animals coming back with, uh, with all the goods laden from, from trade. But consequently, Himalayan livelihoods were described as agro-pastoralism combined with trade. Transhumans, you move up and down with the animals. Uh, it's like in the Alps, people thought. That's, that's the way. Just that life is a little harsher, climate is a little more difficult, altitudes are higher, so that subsistence has to be supplemented with income from trade. Following this logic, the collapse of the caravan trade was seen as leading to the collapse of the entire system. And consequently, the new roads and Chinese consumer goods we've just seen, they are, see, they are very often portrayed as just the, the, the final death blow to the last remnants of this old tradition. But this is not how people see it up here. New roads are welcomed with pure enthusiasm. Not everywhere, but in the more remote places, this is really true. In fact, the Slimi Road, as I've said before, it's, it's, really a, it's, it's really an initiative of the people there. Um, new roads bring new, new opportunities, yes, but more importantly, they offer ways to connect back to the tales of a prosperous trans-Himalayan trade, a past that this people remember. Tsewang and the two brothers, Mingyur and Konsering, for example, they connect to their own histories, uh, to their own biography, biographies of their forefathers. Tsewang is from an old and rather famous trader, smuggler, whatever family of the region. Uh, for generations, member of, members of this family had left their marks on trans-Himalayan trans trade along this route. They, they, they were very famous horse traders for a, a certain time. Uh, Konsering and Mingyur, they're the sons of a businessman and lama uh, who traded in watches. He was uh, first a businessman, then first more a businessman, then more a lama. When he died, Konsering started his business with the capital his father had left behind. Not gold, gold and jewels, but a bank account in Kathmandu. A similar thing can be said of, the, of these roadside, roadside camps as such, as places. There is a long tradition of these temporal trademarks in the Himalayas. You find them everywhere. And there are dozens and dozens of place names that actually refer to these, to these 
sites, places like Tsongsa, which is the marketplace, or like Tukche, which is probably the meeting place, can also be the bad place, it can also be the bad meeting place. Nobody spells these names, so we don't know. Um, but in this sense, these roads, they are not roads to modernity. They are roads back to tradition. There is more circumstantial evidence that lead me to believe that trade is actually more central to these communities than agriculture or pastoralism. Polyandry, for example. Polyandry, the fact that here it's still very much common that all the brothers of a family marry one wife. This has been explained uh, by famous people like Melvin Goldstein, exactly here in Limi, as, as a strategy to... Uh, to, make, to, to control population growth, yeah? Because it's such a difficult environment, it's good not to split the fields in heritage and stuff, so it's, it's, it's very important to have population control mechanisms, and, and that was basically the way he, he explained polyandry. But when I ask people, what, why? What, what's the good thing about polyandry? They say, well, the more brothers you have, the, the more wealth you can generate. Because you need one who does the fields, you need one who, who herds the animals, and you need one or two or as many as you can for, for trade. So the more brothers, the more wealth. The more brothers, also the more power, because there is not much law. So if you have a lot of fierce brothers, then you, you, can, you can basically do what you want. Um, then I ask people around, well, so what's the best job? If you have three brothers, what's the best job? Is, is it like being the peasant with the wife in the, in, in, and the fields back home, or is it the, the guy in the, the, uh, who, who is in the Alps, with, in the high mountains with the animals, or is it the trader? It's the trader, of course, because the trader is the one who brings back the nice stuff, who can roam around, and so on, and so on. And then, uh, is it better to, 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 to be in the freezing mountains or, or down in the fields? Uh, it's a clear case, like the... the the pastoralist is still the higher job. The, 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 the shitty job is basically the one who, who is the peasant. Um, so there is a lot of kind of circumstantial evidence, I find, to consider that, that trade is much more central and it's not exclusively directly linked to the system of agropastoral transhumans. Trade is something on its own. Yes, there is the story of the declining salt and grain trade. Yes, there, there was this phase of closure that hit people hard. But the, this entrepreneurial energy, this has not vanished. It has never vanished, actually. In fact, many have also profited during the so-called harsh times from the 50s to, uh, to very recently. Let me just revisit this alternative history of trade from the 50s to, uh, to now in a few little things. It's, it's things that are not usually put out this way. Actually, the 50s, after 1950-51, the, the People's Liberation Army comes to Tibet. Then there is this, this, this period of about 10 years, nine years until 1959, where not much changes. The monasteries are still, are still have their, uh, their privileges. The aristocracy still has, has their privileges. It's the so-called 17-point agreement that save, saves the old elite from, from being taken over. Uh, but you have this resistance forming, people start moving out of Tibet, like from 55, 56 onwards, uh, and they bring, they bring their stuff with them, and they sell their, 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 their herds, they sell their goods to the people in northern Nepal, because they need cash to move on. Many people, uh, this is a story I've heard like in, in many places in northern Nepal, these were boom years, the 50s actually, from 50 to 59, that's the, the, the time where many families got rich. 
Uh, one reason was also that the, 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 the Indian borders closed down. Like the, the, there was this ban on wool trade um, that the, the, the Americans uh, announced the moment the, the, the Chinese occupied Tibet. Yeah? So there was no more wool trade between Kalipong and, and, um, and Lhasa. And much of this trade actually moved a little east to places like Wolangchung or Kimatanka in, eastern, in eastern, eastern Nepal. These were good years for some, not for all. But then, when uh, in 1959 the border closed, there was a, 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 an agreement in 61 to open it partially. There was a demarcation of the border. That was the time when Limi actually became, became part of, of Nepal, before it was not so clear. Um, and in 1963, borders opened partially again. This was a very difficult time, but many people actually had enough capital to survive that. It's amazing how many, how many plots of land were bought in, in places like in, in Darjeeling, in, in uh, Kathmandu, but also in the, in the Terai, in, in places like, like uh, Dankuta, Daran. Pe uh, pe people started establishing themselves, started, started new lives. Almost everybody, for example, from this famous trading village in eastern Nepal called Wolangchung moved down. Only the very poor people stayed up there. Um, then the Cultural Revolution came. And as a, re a result of that, everything old was burnt and kicked out of Tibet. And this, this led to a, a phase where many people started engaging in antiques trade. Uh, this is a, very, a thing some people don't like talking about because it's also... It always has this. Some people say, "Look, we just saved the stuff that they were kicking out. We we bought it from the refugees who came." Uh, other people say, uh, "Well, you you looted monasteries and stuff." Uh, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of stories around this. But fact is that many people made a living on a, on and a good living on on a, on this antiques trade. It it lasted actually until the late 80s. I know somebody who. From this northern borderlands, who, who has started this antiques trade, and, and his daughter now studies in Colombia, anthropology, by the way. <laughs> this pays for a lot. These antiques paid for a lot. Um, it was also the time where, like, uh, like Tibet came, became fancy in the West. So you had all these guys in New York and in, in, in Berlin who wanted Tibetan antiques because it was this anti-communist highland sacred place. Yeah, the interest in Tibet is, is, is very much related to this. So the, the world market for antiques, the cultural revolution, and these people, they are linked together. Then there was always this, this trade in, in tiger bones, snow leopard bones, and skins, uh, and in Tibetan antelope pelts, like the, the satosh wool, kuru uh, in, in Tibetan, or chiru in, in, in Nepali. Uh, this trade was a traditional trade. It had, has always been going on, but it really boomed only actually after 89. Why? I don't know. It would be an interesting question to, to ask why, but there was a, a literal boom in, in barter trade between like um, uh, usually tiger and snow leopard skin and bones up uh, bartered for, for um, uh, wool for the pelts from these Tibetan antelopes. This trade uh, became illegal uh, in... Uh, 
well, it's uh, in several phases. It became more and more illegal. Like uh, species were listed on the endangered species list, on the CITES list. Uh, there was this story of a um, of like poachers in Tibet hunting Tibetan antelopes, and uh, uh, a Beijing journalist was there, and he basically published it. Uh, there was a film about this. It's called Mountain Patrol. Maybe some people, some have seen this. And this story of this Beijing journalist this has led has led to this environmental movement to safeguard the Tibetan antelopes. So, so um, from like the mid 90s, it was completely banned to hunt hunt and sell Tibetan antelope fur. Uh, so this trade became more and more risky, and actually there are several people still in prison from that time. Uh, yeah, so it, it, it started off as something maybe illegal but still licit, and it ended as something as, as being completely illicit and illegal. It more or less stopped in 2006 when uh, the Dalai Lama announced this was really a bad thing to do. That kind of cut it off. Now it's in Muslim hands. If somebody, or That's what people say. It's only the Muslims do it nowadays. It's no longer the Tibetans. But there's still one important big uh, businessman in Tibetan Kampa in, uh, in Purang who got caught for, for Sato's trade last year and he's in prison. Then once this was over, what to do? NGOs. Then everybody started to fund NGOs, conservational NGOs. Right after the, 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 the trade with Tiger Bones, you start your NGO. There are, uh, I don't know, are several thousand NGOs in, 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 uh, in Nepal, and there are several hundred NGOs in Simikot. Basically, every house has, is an NGO. These are small NGOs that attracted just a, a little bit of money from, from a, a grant from there, a grant from there. They built a house and... and that was basically just an, a, a way of investment, how to milk the international community to, to, to establish like conservation, which was extremely important, of course. Uh, it was also the time where, where other environmental laws started affecting trade. Actually, the salt, salt and grain trade in this part of Nepal, it went on until the 90s to, to a limited degree. Fascinating stories, not time to tell them all. But um, So it wasn't really... It came back, this trade, and, and as Western, Nepal, Western Tibet was uh, food deficient for a very long time, and, and it was very difficult to, to uh, bring foodstuffs from China until the roads were really good, and now there's a train to Kashgar, which makes things much easier. Um, so uh, people still relied on, grains from, on grain from Nepal. So there was still this market. There is still a market for salt, still, for like the Tibetan salt in, in the hills. But... Um, Around 95, 96, uh, this concept of community, community forestry in Nepal finally reached, it started in the 80s, even in the 70s, but it finally reached um, uh, this part of western Nepal, which meant that um, the traditional salt trade, which was based on, on these caravans of goats and sheep going up and down, they lost their win winter pastures because they grazed their animals in the jungles, and these jungles were now community forests, and the communities in charge of these forests were lowlanders, and the people operating the, the caravans, they were outsiders, so they would have to pay for access to the forests, which basically killed this entire thing. Actually, now we have a, a huge food crisis in, in this part of Nepal, and uh, the World Food Program uh, ships rice through these roads of, through northern Nepal and flies rice in, into, into, into Humla to counter this food crisis, which is the direct consequence of the fact that everybody sold their sheep and goat and the, and the grain trade has completely stopped because they have no way to, 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 to feed their animals during the winter. So you have all these environmental laws and environment conservation were like the things that became extremely important during this time. It kind of vanished again. Then it came Yatsukumbu, 
about 2002 or so, people started finding Yatsugumbu in parts uh, of western Nepal as well, in Bajang, Darchula, which is now one of the major Yatsugumbu areas. This trade took over. And the same people, they just moved their capital, their assets, their, 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 their energy to, to this trade. And the most recent phase uh, is, the, is the trade with, uh, with Chinese Rakshi. Here you see actually, that's the traditional sheep and goat caravans. They had these, they carried two and a half kgs of rice on each side, uh, of, of grain or of salt on each side, and they, they all use the same bag still, but they use, use them for three bottles. It's three bottles of Chinese alcohol they, they transport now on each side of a, of, a, of a goat or a sheep. And that's basically, that has become the, the new big trade. Tibetan antiques, tiger skins, conservation NGOs, Chinese liquor, all these things, they are not usually seen as linked to traditional forms of trade. But what I'm saying is that they actually are very closely linked because they, they, they base on, a, on, on, on the same kind of, 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 environment, of, of entrepreneurial spirit that we see with the guys operating these roadside camps today. So my point is actually, to make it short and, and conclude here, that these new roads... And the activities along them, they somehow offer a new vantage point to see the bigger picture. They, the bigger picture on Himalayan history as a history of pathways and connections rather than as a history of peripheries. Borders change, regimes change, goods change, fortunes change, but the pathways themselves and the trade and, environment and, and, and entrepreneurial spirit they reward, they have remained remarkably stable. Let me end here.